And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. So, darling. Uh-huh. What do Yoda's sheep say? Dagobah! Yeah? Yeah. I'm sure they do. Dagobah! <laughs> it's my favorite. And it's slightly related to what we're talking about. Yeah, eventually it eventually. will become clear. What are we talking about, by the so, way? So, today we are continuing our series oh? on Disney. Yeah, our, our uh, Disney World Parks series. Our, our Disney Parks Grand Tour. All right. And uh, we are... Where are we, we headed this fine day? We are heading to Disney's Hollywood Studios, but we are traveling to the past. Oh, And we are going to when it was Disney's MGM Studios, (laughs) which is still what I call it all the time. Old habits die hard. It's, yep. So, So you've been there. I have been there. Uh, This is a third, yet another um, gate at uh, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. So, I mean, if you're jumping on the bandwagon now, we have an episode on the Magic Kingdom. Yes. And Epcot. So this is our third mm-hmm. third one. We're we're going to go back in time. That's generally what history shows do. To uh 1982. Mm-hmm. Epcot opened. Yeah, previously on History Honey. Previously. Honeys. Epcot opened. And around this time, a team of imagineers from what would soon be called Walt Disney Imagineering. In past episodes, we talked about Walt Disney Inc. and then Wed Enterprises. Mm-hmm. That's what it's the same company. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same, same group with same different letters. Just kept changing the name. Yeah, uh, they were tasked with thinking about what was missing from Future World at Epcot. They wanted uh, <laughs> their job was to predict the future. <laughs> well, like what industries weren't they, weren't they including? Oh, okay. What other pavilions could they build mm-hmm. at the front of the park? Where they're looking at those areas of it. Not World Showcase, but the future stuff. The yeah, innovative yeah, yeah. stuff. Uh, and so they were supposed to be creating two new pavilions. The team was led by Marty Sklar and Randy Bright. Marty was a student at UCLA when he was uh, recruited by a newspaper, uh, or to create a newspaper called the Disneyland News about a month before Disneyland opened. So this is long before he was in charge of long these. Long before this. Kind of going to talk about these like. exploratory pavilions. How, how they got to where oh, okay. they were. Flashback okay. to Marty Sklar. Flashback, flashback, flashback. Uh, so he joined Disneyland staff full time uh, in 1956 mm-hmm. and was in charge of publicity and marketing. Uh, in 1961, he moved to Wed Enterprises and worked on attractions for the 63 New York World's Fair, uh, helped design Tiki Room, Small World. Uh, he was also uh, known for writing personal material for Walt Disney to use, like huh. his speeches and stuff, uh, and became VP of Concepts and Planning in 1974 and guided the creative development of Epcot. Um, so it makes like sense that he would He's be tasked with this. He's the guy for this job. Yeah. yeah. And he, over the years, he would then go on to supervise designs for Tokyo Disneyland, MGM Studios, which we're going to talk about, uh, Disneyland Paris, Animal Kingdom, California Adventures, Tokyo Disney Seas, Hong Kong Disneyland. Like, <laughs> he uh, was in the company for 53 years and didn't leave until 2009. So, like, he, he was one of the dudes. Randy uh, was brought to Wed Enterprises in in 68 by Marty uh, as a staff writer working on shows for the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to 
manage employee communications. Um, Disney University in Florida led Walt Disney Imagineering Communications Department, and uh, he was the writer and producer for American Adventure in World Showcase. Oh, uh, and we didn't see that one. We did not go to that one. Cause <laughs> we lived there. In 1983, he was promoted to VP of Concept Development, uh, overseeing development of major shows and attractions. Uh, in 87, he would become executive producer of Disneyland and Walt Disney World theme parks. Uh, and he's known for writing Disneyland The Inside Story. Sadly, he was killed in a bicycle accident in 1990. Oh. So, like, working kind of on this project one of, like, I'm sure he did other stuff because this was, like, early 80s. But it's still kind of, like, one of his last, like, big th- contributions yeah, uh, yeah. to the park. So, I mean, these were the two guys, though, to, like... Create new stuff. Mm-hmm. This was their field. This was what they were known for doing. Judging by those job titles, yes, I would have to agree. <laughs> well, their their resume is yeah. like... So they had to create, as I said, two new pavilions. Uh, one of what they came up with was the using the idea of entertainment as a pavilion so, yeah, theme. yeah, the, the entertainment industry. Yeah. Along with, like, the auto industry and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So they actually created the Great Movie Ride Pavilion. Huh. Um, the main attraction of it being a movie ride, pretty much what we'd end up getting at MGM Studios. Uh, it would have sat between the Lands Pavilion and Journey into Imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, around this time uh, is when Michael Eisner joined Disney. Yeah, that's, so now we're talking about 1984-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So... I know facts... <laughs> I looked that up before recording this because I knew it would be relevant. Yeah. So, you know... <laughs> Epcot opened 82, mm-hmm. very shortly after they start coming up with these ideas for what to do next. Epcot and, phase two. Uh, so a little about Michael Eisner, which he could have his own episode because... He may by the time, seriously. after we run out of parks. So uh, before he came to Disney, uh, he had worked for, for ABC as the assistant national programming director mm-hmm. and then VP of programming and development. In 1976, he became president and CEO of Paramount Pictures. So uh, uh, he was the enemy, <laughs> as far as the film division was concerned. Maybe. Uh, in 1984, uh, while well, there, he thought he would become the next studio chief, because the previous, or the current one, was who had recruited him to the company. Yeah. And considering what his position was, it, it made sense that he would be the one to take the job. He was not at all considered at, or offered the position. <laughs> so he... So he torched the place. Uh so he left, um, and he was brought to Disney. Beheaded men lying in his wake. <laughs> uh, he was, so yeah, he was brought to Disney uh, and became CEO and chairman of the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also presenter on the Wonderful World of Disney TV show. So he really became the public face of the company, just like Walt did. Yeah. Which, like, I feel like if you were a Disney kid in the 90s, everyone knows who Michael Eisner is. Yeah, he was Like, the... you automatically think that he's, like, related to Walt or something because of, like, how prominent his, he is in the company. He was the sort of awkward suit-wearing man that always hung out with Mickey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not nearly as effortless as Walt on camera. No. But, but... Eh, whatever. He's a Hollywood suit. <laughs> I mean, as a kid, I never felt him awkward yeah i was always like he's getting to hang out with mickey that's cool (laughs) i want to be michael eisner within his uh time in the company Mm -hmm. uh and especially his early years of the late 80s to early 90s there was a revitalization that happened during Mm -hmm. this time uh due to movies and projects that 
started coming out. Uh, and Michael Eisner had a lot, his hand in a lot of things. Uh, I would recommend the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. uh, which is about this sort of era, uh, it, it specifically about the uh, animated uh, film studio. But we're going to talk about Parks instead. But yeah. just to see it from a different side, it's, it's a really good documentary. When Michael Eisner came into the company, uh, he, you know, was presented with their ideas for these pavilions, including the movie Pavilion. And he thought it was so strong that uh, it could be made into its own park. Mm-hmm. So the development was kicked off by him saying, we're going to, this is a great idea. Let's turn this into something bigger. Let's go with this. Now, there are several other factors that kind of led. No one pavilion can hold the grand story of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. The, yep, yep. Yep. That's just my like, Michael Eisner impression. Yeah. Sounds just like Oh, him. yeah, definitely. There's a few other things, though, that led to the park being developed. Mm-hmm. Around this time, Disney needed to have some new production studios. They needed more space. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want to buy more property. <laughs> and they're like, hey. That's understandable. We already own all this property in Florida. We should just, like, build it there. It's like three cities worth of land. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was in the plans. That was in the works right now. We're going to build some production studios in Florida, which is probably one of the main reasons as they started developing this idea that actual working production studios were attached to it. Mm-hmm. Is that, well, we're going to be doing it anyways. And if we're making a park about the movies. That's just let's, efficient. Let's just connect it. Yeah. Uh, also in 1982, Universal Studios announced plans for an East Coast park. How dare so you. So obviously some competition there. There's, there's some sharks and jets action going on. When you're. Yeah. Or I guess mice and sharks. Universal has the big jaws, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Construction on uh, MGM Studios started in 1986, uh, and it would open May 1st, 1989, one year before Universal Studios opened. (laughs) Take that. Universal Studios uh, tried to say Disney copied their plans. Uh That Michael Eisner had seen the plan several years before when he... uh, was working for Paramount Pictures, and they were searching for partners for the project. Now, Michael Eisner denies this, and others bring up the fact that Universal Studios Hollywood had been established for decades. Yeah, if you're going to copy like, the park, you don't need to look at blueprints. Like, yeah, it's already out there. This yeah. is not a secret <laughs> thing. You're just doing exactly what you did over there, here. Yeah. We know what it is. But with the blessing of size, we know how that goes. We we invented that. It's, yeah. Come on. So in the development stages, uh, Disney wanted a partnership for the project uh, to increase public interest in the variety of uh, films they could represent. They didn't want it to just be a Disney films park. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, sponsorship funding. Well, yeah. Talked about that a little bit on, in the Epcot one. I mean, like... I don't go into in this episode, but, like, half the stuff they open would be sponsored by something for some period of time. Yeah. Like, Sony, Kodak, what they all sponsor stuff. So they entered a licensing agreement with MGM, mm-hmm. uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And that's a huge library. It's huge. I'm surprised there's no, like, James well, Bond stuff. I guess that they, would be a separate license to deal out, but Yeah, still. so at the time, like, MGM's library had the... Greatest movies of all time, basically. Oh, yeah. And also um, the largest 
library, Mm -hmm. basically, to pull from. I I remember my dad when I was a kid uh, reminiscing about his childhood and and time as a young man. Like, yeah, when you see the lion roaring, you know it's going to be a good one. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... The partnership would give them worldwide rights to use the name and the logo. It allowed them a new marketing angle for their park. It's not just Disney, it's all these movies. Now, the owner of MGM at the time, Kirk uh, Kikorian, was not... (laughs) His name sounds like the little clicker you train your dog with. Oh, Kirk Kikorian. He was not happy about the partnership. No. Uh, Well, then why did he sign the the form? He didn't know about it until the contract was being signed. It was handled by, like, board members and stuff and, like, other employees. Uh Uh-huh. And he did not know about it ahead of time. That's a heck of an owner he got there. Yeah. Uh, And he was absolutely shocked that they were giving away a name to their competitor for... Such a low fee, basically, though they were still paying a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just like, how can we do this? It's like, no no amount of money is enough for this. But it happened anyways. <laughs> uh, in 1988, uh, MGM and United Artists uh, filed a lawsuit claiming Disney violated the agreement by having a working studio within the park. The working studio mm-hmm. was operating before the park opened adjacent to it. The studio was already open for a couple, like a couple years or a year or something before the park officially opened. So they didn't have a problem with the studio being there until the park opened. And they're like, this is a problem. This is not okay. <laughs> so a judge said that Disney, however, was completely in the right to continue the use of the D- Disney MGM name and logo on productions and uh, that were happening at the Florida park. They could continue to make movies. They can continue to have their park. Uh, the way the contract was worded, there was nothing that they were doing illegally. Yeah. Now... And, like, MGM and UA knew this was the plan, right? Like... They had to have. So this seems more like a lawsuit just to get a couple extra bucks out of the deal? Yeah. Okay. That's what it really feels like. Because I'm like, you had to have known what was going on. <laughs> and you waited till this time to do it. Again, it's not a secret. Like, there, yeah. there are press releases going on and, like, they built the dang thing. Yeah. Disney would then go on, though, to file a lawsuit against MGM and United <laughs> Artist and MGM Grand Inc. Why can't they, they just get along? That they conspired to harm Disney's reputation by building their own theme park at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas. Um, now, the thing is, when the judge ruled on this case for Disney, they said, though, that MGM could also license their name out to any other company. Mm-hmm. It was not a strict only Disney gets to use this. It was non-exclusive. Yeah. When this park opened, they they were like, no, now you're stealing our idea. And a judge ruled that both of them had used to the name and MGM could have their park. The theme park just couldn't be like identical to the (laughs) studio backlot idea. Which which, is going to be hard to fit inside a Las Vegas hotel. Yeah. There's not nearly enough square footage. Well, and they weren't going... To be making a working studio anyways. Like, that yeah, wasn't yeah, the yeah. idea. Uh, so the MGM Grand Adventures theme park opened in 1993, and it closed in 2000 because it was a failure. Yeah, all <laughs> It right. did not do very well. What uh, was it like there? Like, what did they do? Were there just, like, shows and demonstrations about, like, the Wizard of Oz or whatever? MGM Grand Adventures theme park was built around a movie, like, studio theme 
and it had like a backlot river tour, but they, it- they weren't actually like shooting anything. Right. It was like pretend. <laughs> and uh, I see that there were bumper cars, so that's nice. Yeah, bumper cars, a <laughs> pirate ship with stunts, some variety shows. It was just kind of like an amusement park. Yeah. That like, had like a loose theme. Mm-hmm. And of the size you could fit in a, a Vegas casino yeah. hotel. MGM Studios uh, opened May 1st, 1989. After all this legal After rigmarole. all of this. Uh, it was a 135-acre property park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dedication to the park, which I always feel is very important for like <laughs> knowing what their plan is, says... The world you have entered was created by the Walt Disney Company and is dedicated to Hollywood. Not a place on a map, but a stage of mind that exists wherever people dream and wonder and imagine. A place where illusion and reality are fused by technological magic. We welcome you to a Hollywood that never was and always will be. Michael Eisner, May 1st, 1989. Interesting that they sort of future-proof this by saying it was created by the Walt Disney Company and not MGM Studios. Yeah. Not mentioned anywhere. Nope. Huh. Nope. Nope. Tricky, tricky Eisner. Well, I mean, they, like, don't have to right. mention MGM. Right. It's not, like, a legal requirement that they do. I, I imagine a lot of the th- decisions made were based on the legally required minimum. <laughs> yes. Well, and the contract they entered also is for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So they knew, so, like, yeah, exactly. like, in 20 years, we're going to have to figure out if we're keeping this or not. Mm-hmm. Spoiler, they don't. We're going to talk <laughs> about that. Uh, so as we mentioned, the park was connected to a working production studio. Which is the coolest part. The coolest thing. The coolest thing. At, like, completely. Uh, it had uh, three sound stages that were used for both Disney productions and outside companies. Um, some things that were filmed there include the new Mickey Mouse Club that had, like, Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, Adventures in Wonderland, which was one of my favorite shows as a kid. I watched the heck out of that show. I, I did. Which that show was out from 1982 to 95. And I love that show so much. <laughs> and then it was used for uh, other shows outside of Disney, like Superboy, Remote Control, uh, the HBO series From Earth to the Moon. Oh, that's that makes sense because they, they would have been like the closest mm-hmm. professional studio to Cape Can- Canaveral. Yeah. That's smart of them. Yeah. Uh, also, a bunch, a series of WCW matches mm-hmm. uh, and Mortal Kombat Conquest was filmed there until it was canceled within its first season. Also- they actually bought, ended up like buying like the set off of Mortal Kombat because they like. <laughs> They, one of the things that they had within their production area, um, the tour area of it, uh, they like to have, like, set stuff in the soundstage for people to, like, see. Mm-hmm. So when they weren't filming stuff, they wanted to have stuff in there. And we're like, well, can we keep Mortal Kombat stuff around, even though none of you are doing anything anymore and you're all out of jobs? <laughs> and they, like, bought it all off of them. Uh, one you didn't put in your notes <laughs> is uh, Thunder in Paradise. The Hulk Hogan Baywatch knockoff where he had a speedboat. That was primarily filmed at Epcot. Like, yeah, they they're, they used the studios for their studio, but mm-hmm. they did so much location shooting in Epcot's mm-hmm. pavilions so yeah. they could pretend to be a globetrotting show. Yeah. In 1988, their first feature 
length movie was that was like primarily shot there was Ernest Saves Christmas. What an auspicious beginning. Yes. <laughs> uh, and now this doesn't have to do with MGM Studios, but I like found it in my research is that apparently <gasps> Sequest filmed uh, shortly at Epcot in the Living Seas Pavilion. I think it must have been the like after episode stuff where they were talking about like sea, con- like sea life conservation well, and stuff. The Seas Pavilion used to be decked out like a sci-fi sea base. Yeah. So it could have been used for anything. But it really it could have been anything. But that's what <laughs> my guess is. And I'm very excited. Please, so, please listen to our C2E2 uh, recap special to hear more about Elena's love for the Sequest television program. I love program. it so much! So in addition to production sound stages and stuff, they also had the Walt Disney feature animation site in site there. Satellite yeah. location. Uh, so a full working animation studio, which I think is kind of like even cooler, <laughs> like the best thing about it. Um, cause I also remember going to this when I was a kid. Uh, so some of their projects included Mulan, mm-hmm. Lilo and Stitch. All right. Brother Bear. Two out of three ain't bad. Uh, the Be Our Guest number from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> uh, two of the Who Framed Roger Rabbit spinoff cartoons. Uh, concept design and animation for Jasmine, mm-hmm. and uh, the I can't just can't wait to be King sequence from Lion King. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, I guess they specialized in colorful, abstract musical numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they were also working on a feature animated film uh, that was called My Peoples, and this got you know cut. Mm-hmm. Before it could be released, obviously. And it was about two lovers from uh, rival families in Appalachia. So like a Hatfield and McCoy thing under new names? Yes. Or, or like, like rural American Romeo and Juliet? Yeah. Uh, but there was this, like this weird thing about like mountain spirits inhabiting like folk art dolls. <laughs> and like trying to bring them together. Sadly, the production was shut down in 2003 and it didn't happen, but it was going to have like Dolly Parton and stuff in it. And I was just kind of like, I kind of want to see this. So very shortly after that production was halted Mm -hmm. in 2004, Walt Disney Studios closed the Florida Animation Studio. Uh, Now, when it opened in 1989, uh, it started with 40 employees by uh, 1998. Um, they had built another $70 million facility there. Um, by the mid-90s, there were 400 people working there. But during the 90s, after a lot of really big hits, this came the time when the studio was pushing for more and more movies faster. Instead of just releasing one movie, they wanted to release a lot. They wanted right. straight-to-video stuff. And movies like Atlantis, Brother Bear, they didn't do well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't do good. <laughs> Um, so that is probably a lot of the reasons that led to, uh, shutting down this studio, is mm-hmm. that they just didn't really need it anymore. There was also a shift to a different style of animation as well. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. <laughs> so we'll take a break right here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, like, the park. The guest experience. Yes. All right. Okay. Cool. See you then.
So uh, the park's built. Uh huh. After a lot of of legal sniping. Yes. And there there are movies being made in it. Yeah. What what does a guest see? What do we what do you even do there? Okay. So when MGM Studios opened, uh there were not a lot of attractions. <laughs> there were five. There were five attractions technically. A oh. lot of people say two, mm-hmm. but really there were five. So there. I'm I'm one of those people. Please educate yeah. me. Yeah. So a lot of people say that the backstage uh backstage studio tour and this great movie riot were the only two things there. Yeah. They weren't. So, so what are these other three things? And then we'll, so, yeah. we'll double back so to So there's those. also the studio animation tour. Oh, that's a set that counts that's as a separate technically tour. separate. Okay. And then there was the monster soundstage and the superstar television. Okay. And, and those are both like audience presented shows? Yeah. There that, are that, audience interactive shows. That counts as an attraction. Yes. There you go. I think... Where a lot of people think it's two is that, like, it seems like these things could be combined. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 oh, it must be you just enter this one and you do them all. Four of those things seem like part of one giant studio tour. Yes. Okay. But if you look, like, on the map from when the park <laughs> opened, mm-hmm. they are listed as separate attractions. And maps. Yeah. Are the best thing in the world. Yes. So I did I did look at a map from the first year it opened. And I was like, <laughs> ah, yes. Okay. Separate things for sure. So this monster sound show, what, uh-huh. what's that like? So the monster sound show uh, was an interactive show hosted by Sony uh, where guests would learn how to create sound effects to movie clips. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have some audience participation where you would help create the sound effects. So it would be... Uh, they'd have clips um, for movies that needed like door squeaks, things dropping, and they would have the sound effects things there. And mm-hmm. a cast member would like walk you through what to do. So, so yeah, a bunch of people would make foley to a, a yeah silent or dialogue only video. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, I did that as a kid. Yeah, cool. I don't this this show we're gonna talk about it a little bit. It, morphed a lot into other names of stuff and i don't know exactly what one i was there for but like the central concept stayed the same yeah and then the the superstar television was similar in a way where you they took famous scenes from tv shows and movies and stuff but what they it was also hosted by sony Mm -hmm. um but it was more learning about how tv production worked so they would take volunteer actors from the audience to fill in these roles in, like, a famous show, like, scene from a TV show. Mm-hmm. And then they'd, like, pretend to film it. So you'd, like, <laughs> have to learn a few lines. Yeah. And then you would go on stage and, like, act it out. We are going to do this scene that you see up there. Okay. These actors have been given their script uh, when they were in, like, the line coming in. Mm-hmm. We have them in costume. What we're going to do is we're going to roll action. And, like, that kind of walking through that, nothing past, like, the filming right there. Because that's a separate thing. Right. So now let's circle back to the famous things. Yeah. So the backstage studio tour. When the park opened, this was a two-hour guided tour that was half tram, half walking. You went through the costume shops, the working Mm -hmm. costume shops, the working scene shop. Uh, they had a residential street, like, set, mm-hmm. um, except, like, all the houses were, like, famous houses from TV shows. So, like, there's the Brady Bunch's house. There's the house from the Golden Girls. Stuff yeah. like that. 
uh, there was a catastrophe canyon, which was like an artificial disaster effects mm-hmm. thing, and is like the the big, where, I guess, where the water like, point. Yeah. yeah, it's one of like the big things. It's this one you're like in your tram. And you get stopped, and they pretend like you're stuck, and then, like, there's fire, and there's all this water that gets released. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. And then in the end, they, they fess up, ah, oh, special effects. Here, here's what practical effects look like. Let's and teach you about it. Now we have to yeah. pump so many gallons. Yeah. You learned something. Uh, there was also the New York Street Mm-hmm. The water effects tank, which is where they showed like how we do an ocean storm. There was the special effects workshop and shooting stage, uh, sound sound stages you went through, uh, post production editing and audio, and you ended at the Walt Disney Theater where you'd see a sneak peek of an upcoming movie. Oh, that's the big attraction that like everyone knew of. You spend two hours there. How much time do you got to do anything else? Uh, (laughs) And then we break for lunch. (laughs) Good night, folks. So the great movie ride was a dark ride through the movies, included like The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoy The Great Movie Ride. It's It's the right kind of corny for me. It is. It hits for me. It takes place in the Chinese theater, Mm -hmm. and it has audio animatronics and live actors recreating the scenes. It's really the live actors that do it for you. It's like the poor poor live actors that have to, like, get into these movies as they're Mm -hmm. trying to just give, like, a tour, and then they're like, oh, no, there's mobsters. Uh, I guess, like, another part of this attraction you could add on is all the handprints of famous actors outside. Like, yeah. it's really one of, like, the sightseeing they, things. They really recreated they, they recreated the front of the, the Chinese theater, like, the front square, I guess, yeah. as well. Uh, and a lot of their handprints are exclusive to them. Like, there are some yeah. people who only did it at Hollywood Studios and not at Growling's yeah. Chinese Theater, the real one. Yeah, which is it's kind of <laughs> cool. And... Or or they have it there, but they also have it there. And mm-hmm. um, I think there are some that are copies, but a larger amount of them are actual, real, like, people doing it, which is cool. My hands fit Jim Henson's hands. Yeah. I had a moment. You did. You did have a moment. Um, And then there was the studio animation tour, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, often gets attached to the backstage tour um so this was a separate thing where you would watch a film called back to neverland it's an animation lesson um film with walter cronkite and Mm -hmm. robin williams and it would guide (laughs) people through the stages of animation and all was using like robin williams and he gets like turned into a lost boy from peter pan Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you would walk through the animation studios, which this is, I remember this as a kid. It was really, really cool. Uh, so like real animators are working on stuff. Yeah. You like can look down and what's that? Yeah. Who's that Chinese lady? Yeah. Just you wait in a few months. Oh boy. Yeah. Cause like they're, they have all their animation studios and there's like a glass hallway basically you walk through, mm-hmm. um, that's raised and you can look down at what they're doing and it's really neat. And then there was the uh, Disney Classics Theater, where you would see clips from animated films, mm-hmm. like really famous clips. It was really cool. So, so yeah, a lot of a lot of those those original things are going to change. And we're going to talk about <laughs> the changing over the course of this, the rest of this episode. Yeah. 
So those were the original attractions. Uh, and later that opening year, uh, two more rides would open. Mm-hmm. Star Tours. Which is great. Hence our joke at the beginning. It's about there Star Wars. There we go. Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah. Uh, and Star Tours, for those who don't know, it's like a motion simulator ride that takes you through space with Star Wars. Yeah. And it's it's randomized. So you don't really get the same experience twice. Yeah. There's uh, a random opening, and then a, the first main segment, and then a random middle, and then a random second main segment. There's like, you, you can crunch the numbers. There's hundreds of yeah. individual experiences. And it's changed even like more now. Yeah. Um, now that there's new Star Wars to add to it. Yeah. They keep doing that. Yes. Uh, so that was added. And then the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular would uh, also open that year. Mm-hmm. It, it acts like it's a movie set and they're filming a sequence, um, mm-hmm. but it's all, you know, you're, you're watching them do stunts and the timing and stuff. It's fun. It's mm-hmm. cool. It's like any other sort of stunt show. Yeah. Except that a lot of it is them showing you how to do a stunt show. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which I think is why it's like the most entertaining of that type of like show is because it, you're learning about it and also it's not just like random cars doing tricks and stuff like that you <laughs> Which know we'll you, get to i'm yeah. sure so you know the story you know like exactly what they're trying to recreate yes and so it's cool to see like oh like this it, I'm, some things are going to be different actually in the actual movie because they don't mm-hmm. have to redo it like 10 times a day <laughs> But it's that same type of idea, like, oh, maybe that is how they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, It's a little bit like watching Raiders and the Raiders uh, special features at the same time. Yeah. But live. Yeah. Which is a cool concept. Yeah. So in uh, 1990, the streets of New York, which is part of the Backlot Tour. Oh, so wrong. One word off. So close. But yeah, so the streets of New York would leave being a part of the Backlight Tour, and it would become uh, just an attraction that was open to pedestrians. You didn't have to do another attraction to be able to go to it. Yeah. That year, also, we would get Muppet Vision 3D, which we talked about in the Jim Henson episode. If you've not listened to the episode, you should go listen to the episode. You'll probably cry. I cried. The the, the bottom line is it's the last Kermit acting that Jim Henson really did. It's like his last last project. And And aside from a dodgy CG character, I think it holds up. It's so good. Yeah. It's It's so... And it's one of those things I'm like, if they ever get rid of it, I will first off be like calling them and swearing at every like person possible mm-hmm. second i will be buying a ticket for the next day <laughs> to go see it one more time yeah um and probably cry through the whole thing and so it's still there exactly as it was mm-hmm. when it opened queue and pre-show area full of visual puns hanging from the ceiling <laughs> yes as you might expect from a muppet show yeah that open and then the honey i shrunk the kids movie set adventure which was a playground where like you you know you seem like you're shrunk because everything because everything's huge. on a massive scale yeah and i a very sad when we went it was, it was closed. closed for refurbishment mm-hmm. and now it's permanently closed 
But I love that thing. I think it was fun. So in 1991, uh, the Beauty and the Beast live show would open. Uh, and it is currently the longest running show at Walt Disney World Parks. Yeah, that's still going. It is still going. It is. It has had two versions. So there's a version that ran from 1991 to 2001. And now there's a newer version. And did, it's... What did they change? Is it shorter uh, so they can do more shows a day or something? No, they actually like added more songs oh. and they put moved the arrangement to more the arrangement of the movie. Okay. In 1994, uh the first like real big expansion would happen off Sunset Boulevard and we would get the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror and a lot of shopping and along a lot of the shopping. way to it. <laughs> um which the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror is like really cool. It's my favorite ride. It's so cool. I love it. Um and so this ride actually uh the plans for a drop tower Went back all the way to the 1980s. Uh, they started looking into this idea for Disneyland Paris, mm-hmm. but it got scrapped. So the idea was picked up when they were building, uh, when MGM opened, uh, and they needed like a thrill ride, an e-ticket ride, as they call it. Yeah. Um, S- something that'll get people excited. Yeah. So they explored several ideas with theming the drop tower. They thought, well, maybe we could do Stephen King. We could do Vincent <laughs> Price Ghost Tour. Oh, that'd be uh, dope. A whodunit murder. Uh. Um, but they came to the Twilight Zone. So they licensed Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And they started clearing the site in 1992. Um, but apparently they did have to move the site a little bit because there were some issues with a sinkhole. <laughs> uh, no, you just get extra dropping. <laughs> it's better that way. Um, one of my favorite facts, I think we talked about this in Epcot, actually, uh, is that the roof of the building, uh, is designed so the rear facade, which can be seen from Epcot, is blended in with the skyline of Morocco. Yeah. Like, they use the same architectural style and color, so that way, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't stand out. It is also one foot below the requirement for having a blinky light. So it's 199 feet tall. Uh-huh, because they don't want blinky light on any of their stuff. Though it's the one building they could get away with it on. Yeah, because that would fit the theme. Like, yeah, it's a giant building. Like They just decided to avoid it anyway. Yes. First, it's such a cool ride to be on, and it's also such a neat ride technically. Like, they really had to do a lot of um, technological advances and being able to... Uh, have the elevator car you sit in be able to transfer to different tracks. Yeah, so Both, it's, like, curving flat tracks and drop tower track type so like, thing. Yeah, your, your dark ride sort of corral is the drop tower. Th- it's it's seamless. It's perfect. Yeah, and they use some interesting technology of, like, not only are they just, like, kind of letting you drop, like, you're being pulled. Yeah. It's not, it's not just a drop. It's a pull, and then a pull back up. So it, like, really... Gives you kind of the oomph for, Mm -hmm. like, it's tall, but it's not, what you feel isn't what you could get from it actually being that tall. Yeah. (laughs) Cool fact. Uh, You'll enjoy, you might already know this. I don't know. Sometimes you read stuff. Uh, it's the art. I, I am. I'm looking at so many books on the shelves. I am known to read stuff. I mean, like you like to look up facts. Yes, and about now we, stuff you like. And now we have a show about that. <laughs> so the archival footage with Rod Serling uh, that was used for the pre-show mm-hmm. is from the actual episode. It's a good life. Uh, it's a good episode. He says tonight's story on the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for. A different t- kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a... And in the show, he goes on to say, a map of the United States. 
uh, they had Mark Silverman do a voice impression uh, to make it say, is a maintenance service elevator still in operation waiting for you? It's kind of cool just that they like yeah. combine stuff. Mark Silverman does a really good, it's so good. voice. It's it's very, very <laughs> seamless. My my favorite thing is all of the uh, Twilight Zone props around yeah. the queue area and the pre-show. I just about died when I saw the little um, uh, diner fortune teller machine yeah. that drives Captain Kirk nuts yeah. in, in that B-list, to be fair, episode, but I like it a lot, personally. Yeah, I remember you were freaking out. <laughs> In 1998, uh, Fantasmic was added in addition to the big theater they built for it. Mm-hmm. Fantasmic actually did not originate there, though. It was a Disneyland a, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. But Tower of Terror was uh, uh, MGM Studios' original. Yes. That then got moved to Disneyland and other parks. Yes. And the one in Disneyland is now a Guardian, going to be a Guardians of the Galaxy thing, which the one in Disneyland was always a different type of track. Yeah. Uh, the Disneyland one was always just a drop tower. It didn't have the, like, pre-ride kind of storytelling mm-hmm. that the Disney World one does. Which is why I'm glad they're they're changing it and making a new story that's unique to its technical capabilities. Yeah. It's really unfortunate they didn't originally make it the same because it's such a unique and cool way of making it not just yeah. a drop tower and if they ever come for the florida one i'm coming in for them knives out don't you touch <laughs> it don't you touch it uh in 1999 your favorite ride yeah rock and roller coaster star, star and aerosmith opened it's a good ride i think <laughs> you couldn't see anything no like it, it's an indoor roller coaster that's all lit up with black lights yes and part of the the draw is the scenery yeah I took my glasses off and I couldn't see squat. Because uh, it goes upside down, so you can't wear your glasses. <laughs> it's a fun ride um, as they blast Aerosmith in your ears. The awkward pre-show. The pre-show is awful. Awful. Uh, which the pre-show is made in a way that, because um, it's like Aerosmith projections like talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is made in a way that they can have cast members or not cast members involved in it. Oh. So I don't remember what we... We had one. We had one, yeah. So like the whole like guitar thing that they do where like they hand off a guitar Mm -hmm. or like Aerosmith asks for it. There's another recorded version where they can do that without a cast member and like someone, another one of the projections like replies. Oh, that's handy. Actually, there's a second change where if they're like overstaffed, they can bring a second cast member into it, (laughs) which is just kind of interesting that they like... Covered every eventuality. Yeah, they're like, well, just in case. In 2001, a very iconic thing was added to MGM Studios. literally an icon by one of the definitions of the word. Yes. The sorcerer's hat Mm -hmm. was added. This opened September 2001. It was a giant hat. Mm -hmm. Mickey hat with ears. Because that's something that was missing from the layout. Like Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, they have a big castle in the center. Epcot has the big ball. Uh, Well. There's there's nothing in the middle. I mean, the Chinese theater kind of served as one thing for that for a while. Mm -hmm. Also, they did have, which we're going to talk about a little later, is uh, the Earful Tower, which was a water tower. With Mickey ears. With Mickey ears. They used it on a ton of their marketing. It, it was like the logo, but it's not a place you could 
go. You have to. You can only see it on the back lot tour. And like the the driving part, not even the self like you guy. can't you can't get out and just take a picture with it. Yeah, but they used it on all their marketing. So like where they had Cinderella's castle. It's also the only park without a radial plan. Yeah, it's a very like oddly shaped, kind of having to backtrack at times plant. The sorcerer's hat uh, was opened um, for it was part of the hundred years of magic celebration that was going oh. on. What what happened in nineteen oh one? That was when Walt was born. <laughs> oh yeah, is that it? So there was uh, celebrations for this happening across all the parks. It isn't like really an attraction. Uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, I guess it kind of is, but like, it didn't house like a ride or anything. It, it, was, uh, it was just a big icon. It was an icon. It did have interactive kiosks um, that were installed where you could learn about Walt's life and career. Uh, those were removed though in 2003. And it was also used as like a pin trading venue mm-hmm. and like a place to sell uh, merchandise. That's and what then, it of was course, when we went. Yeah. And of course, like, a backdrop for pictures and meet and greets oh, and stuff yes. like that. Now, the original idea, though, for this hat is interesting, is that it was originally going to be built outside the park. Huh. Uh, actually, in the spot where, like, apparently they were going to open a David Copperfield magic restaurant. That sounds like <laughs> the worst idea for a theme oh, restaurant. No. Make your burgers disappear. <laughs> Shut up. No. I once had to see him. Personally? Like, I had to go to one of his shows. Oh. Yeah, so it was supposed to be built there, mm-hmm. and it was going to be twice as high. Okay. and So it would have a blinky light. They can't avoid yeah, it. Yeah, and its ears were going to be two Ferris wheels. That sounds amazing. Right? Like, why didn't they make this happen? Except I wouldn't go on it, because it's Ferris wheels, and I hate them. But it was also supposed to house a Walt Disney's One Man's Dream. Okay. Which would later actually be open elsewhere, but it was supposed, that was what was supposed to be under it. Mm-hmm. The plans changed because... Uh, Funding was going to be coming from the retail side of the park, and they just wanted a place to have shops, I guess. <laughs> like, it kind of changed things. The hat was sadly removed in 2015, and a lot of people are really upset about this. I mean, a lot of people were upset when they built it in the first place. Yeah, but then people really became happy about it. They did, like, sell pieces of the hat as pins in part of this pin series called Pieces of Walt Disney World History last year. That's an interesting idea for a pin set. Like, let's I just will break it up that. and you can get a little piece. That's pretty cool. Kind of wish I would have known about it. <laughs> in uh, 2005, uh, the MGM naming contract was up. Mm-hmm. And 20 years. It's unclear whether Disney was like, we want nothing else to do with you. Or if MGM was like, we're not selling your name again. But either way. Either way, they did not go back into a contract with MGM. By 2008, everything was rebranded as Disney's Hollywood Studios. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just find and replace Hollywood for MGM on on everything. Yep. If anything, Hollywood Studios even opens up the door more to like what they can do in it. Yeah. Like it, it, you don't have to have that associated with stuff now now get some paramount up in this warner brothers why not <laughs> so one of the big questions i guess that comes from this is like but how did the great movie ride continue yeah well many of the films of the mgm films mgm didn't hold the copyright to by this point they originally had the library but like either stuff was sold mm-hmm. or because of like legal things they didn't fully have control over it 
many of the Thing movies, including Singing in the Rain, Wizard of Oz, the Tarzan movies they use in the ride, um, they're MGM movies, but by this time they were owned by Warner Brothers, along with, like, all pre-1986 MGM movies. <laughs> so, yeah, just go down the street to, to hey, WB. Hey, Warner Brothers. We really want to keep showing this Casablanca scene in our great movie yeah. ride, because well, it is the greatest movie. <laughs> Well, one thing, too, is that some of the movies were never actually contracted between Disney and MGM. They had separate contracts that were done Mm -hmm. because of, like, how famous some of the movies were and various things. So I'd guess that the alien sequence was one of those. Yes, yes. Like, they originally had the alien rights for this park, Mm -hmm. but they never put it in anything. (laughs) So that's why they built the alien ride over at Magic Kingdom. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they already had it. So why not use it? (laughs) Because of these legal things, they were able to keep their movies. Because of that, the Great Movie Ride has, like, experienced very, very little changes over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a few, like, changes to, like, uh, how certain animatronics work. Mm Mm-hmm. And they figured out, oh, this this kind of sucks. What are we doing with this? Let's change this up a little bit. But the ride itself is very much... The same. The one big change that has come is that in 2014, uh, they entered into a programming deal with TCM. Hence where we get TCM Vault Nights. Disney Vault Nights, which is great. Uh, It is a fun programming block. Yeah. A a lot of really little-known stuff. They became the sponsor of the attraction and underwent refurbishments. And a new pre- and post-show was hosted by Robert Osborne. (laughs) The late Robert Osborne. Uh, Oh. Oh. Um, but aside from that, the ride is very much the same that it was before. Now, looking at some of the original yeah. ride attractions and how, how they've have changed. How have they survived the decades? Uh, the Studio Backlot Tour. Completely gone! It didn't! It's so incredibly gone now. The tour itself was shortened multiple times over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, first, by having the streets of New York removed, walking portions of the tour become its becoming its own separate attraction. Now, the walking part that became a separate attraction closed and became other attractions, including uh, Soundstage 3 was a part of that. It became Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Play It in 2001, (laughs) which closed in 2006, thank God. Now, by this time, the actual, like, live-action Soundstage studio had been long closed, right? Yeah, the production studio was closed by this time. The stages, like, using the Mortal Kombat set, which was one of, like, the later things, like, having just set pieces there, that's what filled the walking tours of these sound stages. Like, Mm -hmm. there wasn't actual films, it was just, uh, they had, like, a Narnia thing for a while when the Narnia films came out. Look at the Narnia props and sets and various stuff. that's kind of cool. Like, prop, prop and... Like a movie-making museum. Yeah. Okay. So it would be themed for what some type of movie that was coming out. That's what was there for a long time during this walking tour section. Because the Avengers of Superboy didn't get picked up for another season. <laughs> so yeah, so that became Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Play It, where you just gotta like pretend to play for money you weren't gonna win. Uh, in 2008, Soundstage 3 and 2 became Toy Story Mid- Midway Mania. That's a fun attraction. It is so good. Uh, Soundstage 1 has now, since 2014, joined it as well. As an extra track. As an extra track. (laughs) uh, Because it is such a popular ride. Another building uh, that was often used to 
how some of these um, prop things, like mm-hmm. the making of something is what they would fill it in with, uh, was converted to Walt Disney's One Man Dream mm-hmm. in 2001, which we saw. And it's really cool. It's a yeah. historical uh, kind of... It's like a museum. It's a museum of the man. Yeah. Of like, so you can see like uh, concept art, uh, like an original figment and various like Mm -hmm. original things from the park. You also, there's really cool like diagrams and models of the parks and stuff. Yeah. There's a really great diorama towards the end. Yeah. And then you get a video that's sort of like a biography in case you just didn't look at anything on the way. It's kind of redundant, frankly, but whatever. Yeah, it's really neat, though. I it's really neat. like it. it. Is neat. I'm I'm glad that they have something like that because that could easily be overlooked. So in 2003, another thing that was taken away from the backlot tour was the residential streets. This was demolished, and the lights motor action stunt show was built, mm-hmm. which has since closed, mm-hmm. and will become a part of some new developments we're going to talk about in a little while. And this is a stunt show about. Cars. About cars. So, like, the... Cars and motorcycles. The Indiana Jones one is about, you know, punching and falls and working with fire. This is about... This one is about stunt driving. Yes. And the weird ways they chop up cars into pieces to make cars for very specialized stunts. And some of it's very cool. The problem this one fell into was the fact that, like, a lot of these stunts, like, take some setup. Mm-hmm. Like, they gotta make sure thing people are okay as they hang off the side of these, like, cars. <laughs> And then they added the weird, like, car from Cars as a thing. To, to cover this setup, but it's not a good cover. It's not oh. entertaining. Oh. <laughs> so I don't mind that it's close. Um, by the time the Backlot Tour closed in 2014, it was went from two hours. It was essentially it was, the whole park. Yeah. It was 30 minutes. Yeah. And it was strictly just a tram. And what was left was you would go, you drive through the boneyard, which was always there, but this was like, now it's much smaller. So it'd be like uh, outside props from stuff. So here's uh, a car from a movie. Here's the original Herbie from... Mm-hmm. They, they had a snow speeder from Empire Strikes Back, which made yeah. me very happy. <laughs> but it's just like stuff like that parked there. And it dwindled down a lot by the yeah. time we got to this point. So you'd see that. You would see the... Um, Catastrophe Canyon and the water tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the water tank was the pre-show. The water tank was the, before the you get on the version. tram. Was yeah. it the pre-show before, or was it like somewhere in the middle? It was not the pre-show because it used to start in a, originally when it opened. It started in a different location. Oh, so it was like part of the walking tour, probably. Yeah, okay. like something like that. as the ride itself like shrunk and changed. They move the entrance to it several times mm-hmm. and the order of stuff changed a bit. Right. Um, it got chopped and screwed. Yeah. Check out the remix. It's one quarter the size. <laughs> um, so it closing officially also meant the loss of the AFI museum, which was where uh, you exited. Yeah. And that was, was cool. one of the best parts. Cause it had, you know, movie props. It had uh, Indiana Jones's whip. It had it, Superman's cape. It had the... Uh, marionettes from Sound of Music. Yes, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. I love you. Yes. <laughs> it had... Um, I forget what movie it was, but actor-used scripts with yeah. their notes in the margin from something. I think it was like one of Orson Welles' yeah, scripts, I so. but I can't remember for what film. I don't remember. And just either. seeing that is incredible. Yeah, and like, it wasn't a huge thing at all. Like, it was not a huge space that they were using but it was really neat 
From, um, from a film lover's perspective, which I think is like, you know, the the market for this park in particular. Yeah. It was really cool. That actually closed very shortly after yeah, we, we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, that that closed before the backlot tour closed. It also means the loss of the Earful Tower mm-hmm. that we talked about Which earlier. Which was not a working water tower. It's not. It's not. It was meant to, like, much of the park, because I haven't talked about this, but the design of the park is meant to copy a lot of things you see in Hollywood, in California, the architecture. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted to do with the water tower was have a water tower because that's something that's on sets uh, or on studios. studios. And, of course, they made it Disney. And I understand it's not a working water tower. You can only <laughs> see it from there. But it was such a part of their marketing. It was. That that it's it's like if they got rid of Cinderella's castle. <laughs> like, Which is also not a real castle. So yeah. I don't have a leg to stand on. The studio animation tour uh, became the magic of Disney animation, and it went from the large scare tour where you would walk through, you know, actual working animator studios to just uh, a film that was very similar to the film they showed before, but now it has Mushu uh, mm-hmm. helping explain uh, how films are animated. And uh, how the character design process works. I like that. Yes. It's a good film. Mm -hmm. You can also learn to draw a character from a cast member, which is really cool. I really, really like that. Mm -hmm. They set you up and they walk you through how to draw the face of Mickey or Goofy or something. Uh, And then it has some displays of uh, original cells from past films or upcoming concept art. All very, very cool stuff. And a huge display of Oscars that are won by Walt himself and the Disney company over yeah. the years. And it's all gone. It closed in 2015. That's gone too. Like, I was like, okay, you downsized. It's still really good. And it's gone. But even what it, it was is nothing compared to just how cool it is to walk through a working animation yeah. studio. Yeah. <gasps> So the Monster Sound Show became the ABC Sound Studio in 1997, and it kept the same concept, except it used cartoons from, like, One Saturday Morning and stuff instead of live-action clips. Yeah. Uh, It's a little more, like, Mm kid-focused. In 1999, it became Sounds Dangerous with Drew Carey, (laughs) and... It was about sound effects, but it was a different approach. Instead of, like, you doing fully work... It had, like, headphones, and it was in the dark, and, like, the sound effects that you heard through the headphones were, like, telling the story. So it was about, like, the power of sound design yeah. rather than the process yeah. of sound design. Yeah. Um, it became seasonal in t- 2009 and closed in 2012. Theater sat pretty empty, except for special events, and it now holds some uh, Star Wars-related temporary attractions. <laughs> um. Now, Superstar Television closed in 1998, mm-hmm. uh, and Doug Live opened. Have you seen <laughs> footage of Doug Live? Yeah. Darling, I think I saw Doug Live live. It is a nightmare. Because it closed in 2001. I was there 2000 and 2001 as a kid. That is three years of hell. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Uh, the theater sat empty after it closed. Until American Idol Experience took over. And let's just pause here and talk about what the American Idol Experience is. Because it is the worst thing ever. I believe you. I trust you. Tell me. The whole concept of it is that you get to go through the audition process as though you're American Idol contestant. Mm -hmm. And then you get to perform in 
the shows through the day. So, like, the the first, there's, like, five of them a day. This is something that literally can take up your whole entire day at Disney. <laughs> like, your whole day. And so, you go, go in and you audition through, like, karaoke. Mm-hmm. And if you are chosen, you have to stay for the show that people can come watch. Yeah. Well, if, like, you're good, you have to stay for the next show. And the next, <laughs> like, you have to do all the shows. Like, you could just maybe do one if you're not very good. If you're really good, you might have to stay there literally all day. Nice, and, like, nice, nice. just, that's all you're going to do at Disney. Can I get a meal voucher? Because I really wanted to ride the Tower of Terror, and I'm just stuck here. Like, I mean, if you go, like, do their audition process and you totally suck, like, you're just going to be done. But if, like, you... You could literally be there for at least, like, three hours up to the entire day. But what if you entertainingly suck and they keep bringing you back and now you have a job? Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, first off, I don't want to do that. Second, I don't (laughs) want to go watch anyone do that. It's the worst concept. It it was like... The one attraction that they really advertised. Oh when yeah, you were they there. like try to like scout you out on like as you're walking around to get you to go do it. And and hearing you describe it, it makes me wonder if they did that just so they could fill the seats, uh, or you know fill the audition line well, more like. But I mean, it closed a year after we were there. I'm sure they were desperately trying to get people to do this. But the way they sold it is like apparently some people who did that eventually got on the show and like well yeah that's because they sang good and they can just go on the show yeah the real one yeah like it's not (laughs) this isn't like getting you an extra pass in or something yeah i i hmm, okay so it closed and then uh the first time in forever frozen sing-along celebration opened i'm sure they have no trouble filling the seats for that one another thing now this was a temper like a a seasonal thing Mm -hmm. wasn't something that was there all the time Osborne family spectacle of lights. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that light in your eyes. Yeah. So this is a holiday light light display thing. Mm-hmm. This started at the park in 1995. For that, it was actually started by the Osborne family in Little Rock, Arkansas. The, the name makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they started decorating their own home in 1986, and... Uh, each year it grew a bit, and by 1993, they were up to 3 million lights. So when you say grew a bit... It grew a bit! Uh, every year! Every year! Uh, and it became super popular in the community and led to a lot of traffic issues that led um, to some not-so-happy neighbors. By 1993, uh, it was lit for 35 days a, at a time. A whole month of this. From dusk until, like, midnight. Their neighbors fired a lawsuit because they're like, my God, this is ridiculous. We can't, like, go to the store. Yeah. Um. So the Osborne family added more lights. <laughs> Welcome to America. Then the county court said uh, that they could only have their lights on for 15 days and only from 7 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. Uh, they appealed this and uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court <laughs> to the Arkansas Supreme Court and they were like, No. That you have to do that, and they kept trying to fight it and trying to fight it. But then in 1995, they were ordered to completely shut it down. I really wish I knew what Clarence Thomas thought about lighting up your neighborhood for Christmas. Yeah, well, they and like they grew it so much that they ended up buying like some extra proper surrounding property and stuff, and like they had like three lots by then that they owned. 
Um, so the family continued to have some small light deplay- displays through the 2000s. Mm-hmm. But the court case gained them national attention. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Walt Disney World project director John Fellin approached the family about taking the display to Disney. And at first they just thought, like, that they wanted the display to, like, put in some area in Florida. Mm-hmm. But they actually wanted to put it on the residential street of the Backlot Tour. And oh, when yeah, yeah, yeah. the family found this out, they were like, yes. Like, they love the parks. They were like, yes, please, <laughs> let's do this. Cover the Golden Girls' home in my <laughs> golden lights. So uh, the display was moved there to the residential streets, and it grew up to uh, five uh, million lights. <laughs> when uh, the event was happening at Disney, they would shut down the tram tour at dusk so people could walk the residential street and see it. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2004, we talked about the residential street being torn down. So then it was moved to the New York streets, which would be later called Streets of America. Yeah. Um, and they added artificial snow, <laughs> which I love. I love the artificial snow. It's bubbles. Don't try to eat it. It's bad. <laughs> don't do it. I, I still try, but don't. Do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> in uh, 2006, it became the Osborne family spectacle of dancing lights. Because that's a mouthful, and we really want our thing to be hard to say. Well, this is when they added uh, more circuits and electronic dimmers and stuff that allowed them to do more of their advanced display flashing and changing stuff. Oh, and, and like all the music sync. And all the music sync and everything. It became much more high tech. That's cool. I'm glad I saw it as that, because... It had a little bit before, but it wasn't all like... I think they had to do stuff manually, so it wasn't as involved. Like, I mean, they had to, like... There had to be someone on the switches. You are going to get carpal tunnel for that. <laughs> yeah. Eh. Um, In 2011, it was switched to LED lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worst thing ever is in... <laughs> 2016, January 6, 2016, it was the final night they, Disney has said that it is done, it has permanently been ended. That's the worst thing in 2016? I don't think that's It's not the worst thing in 2016, but it's really sad. I don't think it's even the worst thing by January 6th of 2016. You know what the worst thing in 2016 was? When they stopped the electric light parade. That's the worst thing. But it's still really sad. It's such a cool thing. It and is like, really good. Disney fans are like, just move it somewhere else. They've got the square footage. Just put it somewhere else. The timing makes me wonder. This is just a rumor I'm making up. But the timing makes me wonder if it wasn't always like a 20-year thing. But why not just renew it? Just renew it. It's fun. Well, it's not like the family can go put it back up somewhere. Exactly. So many of these changes... Including, like, losing the Osborne lights because... Because Streets of America is gone. Streets of America is closed. It comes from recent developments of what they are doing. Uh, There are two new lands being built. Mm -hmm. There's Star Wars Land and Toy Story Land. Star Wars Land is taking the place of Streets of America, Lights, Motor, Action, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids... Uh, along with uh, some of the backlot like facades and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit of Streets of America that's left, and that's going to be turned into kind of a Muppet Vision 3D courtyard. Yeah, I think they've already n- renamed that area Muppet Courtyard. Yeah, uh, Toy Story Land is taking the place of the like entire backlot area and production studios. The the rest of it, yeah, the rest of it. So a lot of the things that have recently closed 
have closed for this, which many of the things that have closed, I'm really glad closed, but <laughs> it's a big change. One it's... thing with the history of this park is that there's been a lot of change mm-hmm. on a small scale, but like it is really going to be a completely different thing now. Like, yeah, it it started with a strong identity. Uh-huh. And when these new lands are open, it will have one again. But it's a completely But, but all these different. decades in between, it's a very confused place. Very, very confused. There'll still be a lot of things, like the whole idea behind the original park was like the, the Hollywood uh, golden age. Yeah. The 30s and 40s. That's really where focus of the time period is and like a lot of these streets and shopping areas and stuff. Um, And so a lot of that's going to exist. But and there are rides, of course, that, you know, Indiana Jones and whatnot, like stuff that wasn't from that. But it's very different now. And Mm -hmm. now it's very much going to kind of be like the Hollywood Golden Age area, which will be kind of the entrance. Mm -hmm. Star Wars, Toy Story. Here's this little Muppet bit. (laughs) <laughs> Here's like you know it's like it's yeah, very yeah, much yeah. becoming like a land park like Magic Kingdom compared mm-hmm. to where it was just kind of a like, mishmash of film. Yeah, it, it was a place to celebrate films and the creation of films, mm-hmm. and now all that's gone, and it's it's basically yeah Magic Kingdom for teens. Yeah, it's really going more of like a universal route now. Than it ever did before. Especially <laughs> now. now maybe they, they can win that lawsuit. Maybe, uh. yeah, now they could. Because what made it so unique was like the kind of educational stuff about production, creation. Oh, and involving you in the creation. Yeah. You the guest. When when we went, I, I came away with this uh, sense. When, when a lot of the things that have closed weren't closed yet. That uh, it, it suffered from this sort of dual identity where uh, everywhere else is operating on a very consistent level of fiction. Yeah. Whereas depending on what you're doing at Hollywood Studios, sometimes we acknowledge that movies are a made up thing with scripts and actors and special effects. Yeah. And sometimes there are real stories that you are now entering. Yeah. And... and uh, so while it started squarely on one side, it's now squarely on the other. Yeah. And, and it was weird being in that sort of liminal zone. Like, uh, as an example, in the Backlot Tour, mm-hmm. uh, the the last line before you get in the tram is, is the big uh, prop shop. Yeah. And I had no idea whether the props I was looking at were real props or reconstructions. Yeah. And there's like nothing that. Like, and I feel tells like you. anywhere else in Walt Disney World, I would know. Yeah. <laughs> for certain, if this is the real thing from the movie or I'm playing along with the story of this. Yeah. No, that's very, very true. And I feel like a lot of this comes from the fact that the 90s were a very confusing time for Disney as a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they were dealing with like as we kind of talked about in the animation thing, blockbusters, mm-hmm. amazing films, and then, like, complete flops. <laughs> and they were, like, trying to figure out, like, what, I mean, and, and that what, the, the... what they were doing. They were changing stuff. They were trying different things. And mm-hmm. um, the focus was kind of all over the map in what they were putting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it came to, like, films. And this is a park that could only have come from the the Eisner era yeah. of Disney 
from you know the first time the company was headed by a like dyed in the wool Hollywood guy. Yeah, yeah. The Eisner era was a very different time of Disney mm-hmm. than what came before and what we're in now. So, so that that's why you see things like all of these rides being based on known properties. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think you, you don't have to create something new here and get people to like it. This is something that we can sell well. Yeah, I don't think there's a single attraction we talked about. That is an original idea, like, say, Figment or Pirates of the Caribbean or... Yeah, I mean, there's concepts for things that were like, this is how we're going to do it, that is like Mm -hmm. a groundbreaking way of doing it, but we're still using a theme for something that is... Or licensing something for Mm -hmm. it, or... Yeah, you don't have, like, original characters. But then would you want them in a park all about how great movies are? I mean, it, it's a little bit of uh, just the whole concept of the thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting park. And, you know, it's... Of course, this is also... We're looking at... This is very much a different time of history. Like, it's getting newer and newer and newer. Mm-hmm. But it's still, like, decades old now. <laughs> which is crazy. It's very slightly younger than us, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. Tiny little bit. It's a little baby. <laughs> When we eventually go back, it will certainly be the park that has changed the most. Yes. It will be, like, completely different. I mean, yeah. Like, there'll be a lot, like, four things we went on before that still <laughs> exist. Five. And those things, like, I those mean... Those are great things. They're great things. Like... I don't want those to go. Some of my favorite attractions in the whole thing are at... Like, all but one of my absolute favorites, I think, yeah, are, are, are at Hollywood there. Studios. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm so hyped for Star Wars Land. I mean, it looks it, like Star Wars Land and Toy Story Land are going to be amazing. Can, they're going to be great. Yeah. They're they're doing what Disney does so well in taking a theme, mm-hmm. like taking a world, taking a place, and turning it into something where you just feel like you're there. Mm-hmm. It's what they, like the stuff that came out of New Fantasyland. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, it's going to be that level of like detail and amazingness. <laughs> um. So that's that. Did you learn something? I think I talked about all the things I would have segued into at this point. So, no, I I learned some biographical information about uh, uh, Mr. Sklar. So with that, I think we're going to read off some letters. Okay. then we've got some letters to read yeah do you not like letters no i like letters i just had a rough break i got attacked by a bookshelf please don't take it out on our listeners (laughs) letters yay so final gamer sent us a letter and so our prompt for this week was like movia triv movia (laughs) movia (laughs) movia movie Trivia. Movia. That's what we should just call movie trivia. Movia. Yeah. Yeah. So their their favorite movia, gonna you, go with it. You can try. Has to do with Bruce Lee. Most martial art films are uh, sped up to emphasize the speed and power of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Lee's films were not. Uh, they were, his moves were actually slowed down by being shot um, 
32 f- frames per second and then run back at 24 frames per second because he would like punch so fast the cameras of the time couldn't keep up with him. <laughs> He's too fast. Too fast for too punching. Fast. So thank you, Final Gamer. Thank you. Now, James wants to tell us about his favorite historical dog, Sergeant Stubby. Stubby. Stubby uh, served in many battles of the First World War. He located wounded soldiers. He captured a German spy. He alerted uh, his his fellow soldiers to a surprise gas attack. Uh, And Sergeant Stubby is the most decorated war dog in U.S. history. Aww. Clearly deserved. Now, getting to this episode's prompt, uh, James's favorite behind-the-scenes fact is that Groundhog Day was shot mostly in reverse, uh, because Harold Ramis knew that Bill Murray would get considerably more grumpy the, the longer uh, uh, in a film shoot he, he was. Roll. The, the big happy redemption scenes were, were shot in the beginning, and his doldrums of existential dread... And just being a big jerk, uh, mm-hmm. we're all shot toward the end. <laughs> nice. Thanks, James. Austin sent us an email. Uh, they are a long-time listener since the first episode, but a first-time writer. And sent us, of course, a picture of a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Ricky. Ricky, an Australian shepherd. Very cute. Very cute. Favorite behind-the-scenes movie Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is any time that, like, an accident or some improv makes it into the final cut of a movie um, and becomes, like, a famous thing that it's known for. Mm-hmm. Some examples were Dustin Hoffman nearly getting hit by a taxi, but staying in character and yelling, I'm walking here. Chris Pratt doing what he does in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> uh and stuff like that, which is all, mm-hmm. that's always really fun. I always like those things. Uh, one of the biggest examples is Harrison Ford's just shooting the sword guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah. Which is not part of the stunt show, I don't think. No, I don't, I don't think, think they referenced that one. But I don't, I don't think so. Trying trying to weave it into the episode. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. Uh, Rick sends us a uh, production fact, not of a film, but of a TV show, The Greatest Show of the Galaxy, a late 80s uh, Doctor Who story. Nice. In, in the big finale, there's, there's a giant explosion that uh, the Doctor, played by Sylvester McCoy, is just supposed to walk coolly away from like a tough guy. This explosion happened to be much larger than uh, they planned for. It, it was the sort of thing that would make anyone break character and run for actual safety. But Sylvester McCoy is a professional, and he kept on walking, knowing that they did not have the time, film, or explosive to do a second take. Uh, he caught the back of his pants on fire on that one. <laughs> it's a great story. From a great story. But before we say goodbye to Rick, we have to say hello to Riv. And happy birthday. Happy birthday, Riv. Happy birthday. Sorry, Rick. Riv, uh, I think, might have won your bet. Yeah. We are not talking about The Wizard of Oz. Now, Rick, if you want to really push your your, uh, interests... Just say that we did talk about the great movie ride and the improved animatronics, and one of the best animatronics in there is the Wicked Witch of the West. Fight it out. It is your. It is his birthday, though, so like... Yeah, come on. Like, 
Let, be nice. Let him have this one. Let him have a, a good birthday. Thanks, Rick, and happy birthday, Riv. Paladin's favorite uh, movie now you got me doing it, <laughs> really is catching on. It is about Sylvester Stallone's dog, Butkus. Sylvester Stallone, before he became a star, was living day to day, and at one point he had to sell his dog to some stranger at the 7-Eleven to make ends meet. Now, he did successfully sell the script to Rocky, and uh, used part of that money immediately to buy Butkus back. Yay! And you can see him in the movie, uh, Rocky jogs with a dog in part of the training scenes, and that's that dog, that's Butkus. Yay! Doggy! So thanks, Paladin. Uh, Jeff sent us an email with another picture of Phineas! Phineas has got something in his mouth. Yeah, I love dogs with stuff in their mouth. And I also love Phineas. Phineas has so much fluff. Such a fluffy dog. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Flavor 5 sent us an email uh, that their favorite uh, movie You forgot your own word. I did. I did. Pretty much anything to do with the first alien movie, the attention to detail in the set, uh, costumes in particular, and some of the, like, monstrous giant sets they had and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is some pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Flavor 5. Thanks, Flavor 5. That reminds me of something I really love about Hollywood Studios that I didn't explicitly talk about in mm. the main body. What's that? I really do love the, the architecture of the buildings. I know we mentioned it a little bit, but I just want to praise them. Yeah, I th- they, they they got some good architecture. I think the, the entrance area and the Sunset Boulevard area are some of the prettiest zones in any of they the parks. They are. They're really, really nice. And the, the little uh, Echo Lake area that that has all the California crazy architecture. Yeah. Like there's a snack bar that is in the shape of a dinosaur. The dinosaur is gone. What? I'm pretty sure they got rid of the dinosaur because of Star Wars land. We can look it up right now. Emergency averted? Yes, Gertie is still there. It looks like the snack bar might not be open. But it, it looks like the dinosaur is still present. Okay, another architectural note is that the whole center of the park is a gigantic hidden Mickey. How about that? It is. Eyeballs and everything. <laughs> Made out of landscaping. Yeah. But back to the letters! Back to the letters! Peter writes in uh, to tell us about his favorite painting, Ilya Repin's Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan O. The, the conveyance of insane horror in the eyes. Very striking. Uh, and as for uh, movie trivia, gonna gonna keep on a Russian theme. White Son of the Desert, a, a famous sort of spaghetti western, but not uh, that was nearly never released until Leonid Brezhnev saw it in his villa and was like, "Yeah, people got to see this." Yeah. Also, I'm in charge of the Soviet Union, so when I say it, I mean it. Yeah, <laughs> that's my boy. It. it it's really cool how um, the Iron Curtain led to uh, like a completely divergent evolution of like film language and film theory. Yeah, Soviet films are good. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Alex and Faye write in. They wanted to tell the story of how Andrei Tchaikovsky uh, died of cancer in 1982 and left his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company so that he could play Yorick 
in future performances of Hamlet. Uh, anyone who saw David Tennant on stage also saw the skull of Tchaikovsky. Hey! My, uh, college uh, Shakespeare teacher worked on that. Yeah. Yeah. They've also got some fun film facts in mind, uh, especially related to Kurt Russell, like how his first screen role involved him kicking Elvis Presley in the shins. Later, he would go on to play Elvis Presley, so... Um, I guess it worked out. There's a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also about how Kurt Russell would just go hang out in St. Louis when, when filming Escape from New York with his eye patch and costume and everything. <laughs> And just stare down tough guys. <laughs> uh, they, they also gave a show suggestion, so we're going to keep that secret, but it's a good one. Shh, we can't tell. Thanks so much, Alex and Faye. Uh, Liz sent us uh, an email with uh, two bits of sound... Sovia. I don't know how to turn... Sovia? Yeah, maybe you should Sound trivia? Maybe you shouldn't maybe, do the thing. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Balrog's roar from the first Lord of the Rings movie was made by sliding a cinder block along a wood floor. <laughs> uh, they wanted the sound to sound like something that came out of the bowels of the earth. Uh, I think they got it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the roar of the T-Rex in Jurassic Park is baby elephants trumpeting. <laughs> and the calls the velociraptors make while they're stalking the kids in the ki- kitchen are the sounds of tortoises mating. Not sure what tortoises, but yeah. It's definitely not the ones we saw at the zoo. Those were silent. <laughs> well, maybe they weren't having uh, as good a time. They were definitely having a time, though. <laughs> uh, Liz also sent us a picture of Rudy the dog and Bagel. The rat. A lot of pictures of Rudy. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. Yes. Uh, if you would like to write in and have something read on the show or for any other reason, mm-hmm. we've got some questions we answered th- these past two weeks, got some other show suggestions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can send that to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Sure can. Yeah. There's no prompt for next week. Because I don't know what I'm talking about next time. So you can still email us, but we don't got a specific thing for you to email about. I'm bad at my job. Yep. So <laughs> why not get in touch with us other ways on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram? Uh-huh, you can do that all by going to History Honeys. Mm-hmm. And you should tell a friend. <laughs> Is that what this weird like? No, I'm just trying to oh. figure out what to say next. Oh, okay. Well, you should tell a friend. Word of mouth really helps uh, get our show around. Mm-hmm. So let people know that you enjoy listening to us, either us as a whole or like, hey, this episode, I know something you'd like. Mm-hmm. Let them know about it. Uh, what else should they do? They should probably give us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher or the uh, podcast platform of their choosing. Yeah. Because it's very helpful and it's also very gratifying because you all say such kind things. Do those things. It only takes a minute. It doesn't even take a minute. It takes Mm -hmm. seconds. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, uh, listening to our C2E2 recap. Yeah. We didn't announce we were going to do that on the show. Mm -mm. We sort of did it as a whim in the moment. Uh, 
if you listen to the episode, we talk about when over the weekend we decided we had to do it. Yes. Because it's something we've done before. It just be, we were like, oh, maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't. And then it was like, nope, we're doing it. It's happening. There was, oh boy, there was an uh, experience. Yes. And if you want to get the background of what I'm dancing around, go check out that bonus episode. It was a lot of fun. Go do it. While we're plugging other things, this is also your last chance to listen to Sex Archie before the finale. Hey! This episode goes up on Tuesday. The finale of Riverdale Season 1 airs on Thursday. Yep. And we can help you get current. You'll know all the in-jokes. You'll know all the plots. You'll know all the characters better than they know themselves. Yep. Yep. (laughs) We know their inner souls. And uh, we'll try to get you the finale of Sex Archie Season 1 ASAP as well. Mm-hmm. I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.